What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Joseph Wang. Joseph is a former trader at the Fed desk and now owns a blog where he writes about the insights of the Fed and the overall markets called FedGuide.com. He's also got an Amazon bestseller called Central Banking 101. We get into the banking collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the potential for others, and what he believes are some of the issues uh, that occurred in Silicon Valley Bank. We took a deep dive into that and the overall banking sector. We also get into the overall economy, the market, and the consumer. So be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear from Joseph and myself is strictly the opinion of us and should be taken as entertainment purposes only. And I can't repeat it enough. It is not financial advice. Please, please, please do not take this as financial advice. And as always, please help support the show. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Give it a five-star rating. If you're watching on YouTube, please, please, please like this video. Subscribe to my channel. And if you're not watching on YouTube, check out the video. Check out our pretty faces and do the, do what I just said. Like and subscribe to help spread the good word. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, and I'd like to thank everybody listening on any podcasting 2.0 app, such as Fountain and Streaming Me Sats. Those are greatly, greatly appreciated, and it really shows that you you know, enjoy the show and you help support it. And if you're listening on any audio podcast, please, please, please subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Give it a five-star rating. Help the show grow. And if you're listening on YouTube, of course, smash that like and that subscribe button. But I've got a very special guest uh, in the waiting room right now. I got Joseph Wang. He's a former trader on the Fed's trading jet trading desk, and now he writes a blog called FedGuy.com. Also, FedGuy12 on Twitter. So, Joseph, man, what's up? How's it going? Hey, Brandon. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So, for those in the audience who don't know too much about you. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, yeah, how you got here today? Sure, sure. So right now I write and operate a blog called fedguide.com where I teach and write about the markets. Um, so before that, I was a senior trader on the Fed's trading desk. And believe it or not, the Fed does have a trading desk. That's what they use when they do things like quantitative easing, when they do things like the FX swap or repo operations. Uh, it's actually a really, really good place to learn about the markets because when you're on the Fed's trading desk, you're kind of at one of the centers of the financial markets. Um, when I was there, we had open lines of communication with basically everyone in the marketplace from foreign central banks to commercial banks to big investment funds. So when something happens, we always get to talk to people to figure out what's happening. And you also get access to a lot of really cool data. So it's a really cool place to actually learn about how the financial system works. And I took my insights, I put that in a book called Central Banking 101, which is a bestseller on Amazon. And I continue to help people learn more about what the Fed is doing and how to understand markets through my blog and online courses. All right, that's all great stuff. Well, I mean, what a what a better time to uh, to have you on than you know in the midst of you know what is going on with this banking crisis and uh, maybe a contagion. I'm not really sure. I don't know really sure how to describe it. But, <coughs> I mean, let's just take it from the top. There, obviously, you know, the big headline was Silicon Valley Bank. The Fed's been raising interest rates at a historic pace and kind of let the foot off the gas a little bit, but just you know raising 25 basis points at the past two meetings. Um, so. Yeah, I guess uh, let's take it from the top. Why uh, why is this big banking fallout kind of occurring? And why does it seem like, you know, there's this big contagion sort of spreading uh, through the banking system? Yeah, it, it looks that way. But I think it's, it's a little bit, it's not as bad as it may appear to be. So in 2008, we had this huge crisis in the banking sector. We had Lehman Brothers fail, and we had a whole bunch of other banks that basically got bailed out by the federal government. So that kind of traumatized a whole generation of invest investors. So whenever they think bank failing, they go into panic mode because they remember in 2008, 
the world was very close to imploding and many people lost tremendous amounts of money in the great financial crises. But I think what many people fail to realize is that things have changed since then. We have a, we, we as people tend to fight the last war and I think that's what's happening right now. Now, let me tell you a couple of big things that have changed between uh, now and then. So the banking sector imploded in 2008 and since then, the regulators came out with this whole new set of reforms that made banks much safer. Uh, one of them is called Basel III, which puts a whole lot of regulations as to how many, uh, how banks manage their assets. So they have to have a lot of liquidity and how they manage liabilities. They have to make sure that their uh, deposit structure, for example, is less volatile. And another really big difference is how the Fed helps the banking sector. So beforehand, the, there's very little cash held at the Fed in the banking system. So before 2008, the entire banking system only had about $50 billion of cash on deposit at the Fed. If you have only $50 billion of cash on deposit at the Fed, obviously you're more prone to runs because there's not that much cash in the banking system. Today, that number is $3 trillion. Now, the banking system as a whole is much, much more liquid and much, much more well-regulated. So it's very, very difficult to have any systemic banking crises in the U.S. But that being said, we have over 4,000 commercial banks, a few thousand credit unions. When you have this many businesses, you know, sometimes there are bad businesses that fail. Now, if you look at the banks that are failing more recently, you have Silicon Valley Bank, as you mentioned, Brandon, you also have First Republic coming under lots of trouble. You have um, Signature Bank, you have Silvergate and so forth. You notice that those banks all share one thing in common. They're, they are highly exposed to the tech sector, especially very risky tech sectors like crypto and venture capital. So when I look at this, I see whole thousands of banks in the US and those that were exposed to the sectors that were not doing well basically going under. So that's not really surprising to me. You'd expect something like this to happen. Um, and if you take another level, so if you go down another level, you'll see that in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it's actually pretty obvious what happened. They were a very, very badly managed bank. So at a high level, what a bank does is that it has short dated liabilities and longer dated assets. So you deposit money in a bank and you can ask for that money back anytime you want. And the bank is always scared that everyone will come ask for their money back at the same time and that the bank won't have enough cash on hand to meet all those withdrawals. When that happens, you know, the bank gets squeezed. It doesn't have enough liquidity on hand. So banks don't really want to be in that situation. So there's a lot of ways that a bank can manage themselves so that they won't be in, caught in a, uh, in a situation where they won't have enough cash on hand. One popular way that banks can do this is by borrowing in CDs. Now, everyone sees CDs uh, at a bank, they offer higher interest rates, but in exchange for higher interest rates, you also lock your money up in the bank until the CD expires, right? And, until the CD matures. That's a way for a bank to manage their deposits so that not everyone comes and asks for their money back at the same time. So they don't get into a liquidity, liquidity crunch. Another very popular way and especially common among banks of Silicon Valley bank size is to make sure you have a very diversified depositor base. Um, in the US, as you know, we have deposit insurance up to $250,000. So if you are a retail depositor and you have money in the bank, you're not really worried that the bank will fail because if it fails, the government will just give you your money back. You have no credit risk. But if you are someone wealthy or a company, it's, let's say you have a million dollars in the bank, then it's possible that you can lose some money. And so <clears throat> if something's wrong with the bank, you become very cautious. If you hear something's wrong with the bank, you want to get your money back ASAP. So uninsured deposits are more volatile, whereas insured deposits are less volatile because they're protected. So if you are a bank and you're trying to manage your liabilities in a uh, reasonable way, you want to have a a good mix of people who are insured and uninsured. Across the US banking sector, around banks usually have about 50% of their deposits to be uninsured. Silicon Valley Bank 
had over 90% of their deposits uninsured. So that means that their depositor base was very prone to running, which is exactly what happened. And no other bank, basically no other bank, manages their deposits like that. Silicon Valley Bank was an extreme outlier. And um, they kind of paid the price for that. So when I look at Silicon Valley Bank, I see just a really badly managed bank who went bust, which is totally normal. The industry that they were highly concentrated in went bust, so people panicked, and they had a lot of flighty deposits. Now, that spilled over, obviously, because once Silicon Valley Bank went bust, you have banks that, that are perceived to be like it also under assault. One that comes to mind was First Republic. First Republic, also in California, also had a, lot of, uh, had a big tech exposure. Also, whereas not as extreme, but also had a lot of uninsured deposits. So, so First Republic got uh, you know hammered, not surprisingly, and also Pacific West, which is also a bank in California. So the picture that I'm looking at is not a systemic banking crisis in the U.S., but a panic among banks in California, basically, who are basically exposed to the tech sector. And I don't really think that spreads to the wider economy at all. I certainly haven't seen too much of an evidence of it. It does seem to impact um, sentiment a little bit, but but uh, I don't think that it's going to have, have a big impact or a lasting impact. But there are things happening in the Eurozone that I think are, are, are more concerning. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, well, I want to dive into the Eurozone in a second. But, um, you know, I, I kind of want to dive into, you know, how you, uh, you know, what you said about the, the banking sector, sector now, how you don't believe it's, you know, maybe like a widespread contagion, because I believe an article from CNBC came out saying about, you know, 183 potential other banks. And I know you lined out, you know, there's about 5000 banks and credit unions in the United States. So that only equates to, you know, give or take like 3% of, you know, the overall banking sector. Um, but, you know, when it happens, when, so when something like this happens, and like you said, Silicon Valley Bank was, was poorly managed, it seems like the banking sector is extremely regulated. So, you know, I guess, it, is this going to cast a, a closer microscope maybe on, um, you know, maybe some of the banking activities and how they're regulated in the future? And, uh, you know, why wasn't, uh, I guess, maybe they under a, a deeper microscope, uh, you know, prior to this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I think there was some regulatory oversight. I mean, okay. there was some regulatory failings when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank. And there's a couple couple ways you can look at this. So in the during the great financial crises, what we were worried about was banks that are systemically important, basically too big to fail. And so we put those too big to fail banks under super, super strict regulation. We basically made them really boring uh, so they wouldn't be able to get in trouble. But the regulatory framework was a lot lighter for smaller banks because the thinking was these guys don't matter. So if they fail, whatever. The threshold to be under a super high regulation is about $250 billion in assets. So these regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank usually have about $200 billion. So they are under uh, a lighter regulatory framework. So they uh, kind of escaped the more stringent regulation that would have made them safer. That, that's one thing. And to be clear, they lobbied strongly to be to stay under that threshold to make sure that they wouldn't uh, be subject to too much regulation. The other point is that even though they were subject to lighter regulation, it was pretty obvious that they had a very big mismatch in their, uh, let's say, in their in their interest rates profile. So they had a lot of volatile deposits, but they also had a lot of long dated assets. And that was, that was obviously a recipe for disaster. So any, I think any competent regulator would have saw that and done something about it. What's interesting is that so Silicon Valley Bank, one of the regulators is the San Francisco Fed. I think it's interesting to note that the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was a director at San Francisco Fed. So there is, there is some possibility that maybe, maybe because of that, Silicon Valley Bank maybe was not as, um, I guess, adequately supervised as they should be. So the regulators definitely need to ask some hard questions, definitely need to have some accountability. I suspect that they will, though. I mean, the way that the government works is you can never get fired. So all those 
all that incompetence and all that poor judgment was going to stay with the Fed uh, until those guys retire. But what would, what's really predictable is that I think that Congress will probably come up with stricter rules to regulate regional banks um, so that eventually they will be very boring and very highly regulated like the big banks. So then what does that mean, I guess, for for maybe some smaller business startups, um, you know, maybe even like the tech sector, because, you know, obviously Silicon Valley Bank was, you, you know, kind of funding or like allowing a lot of these startups and kind of venture capitalists to deposit and you know, hold accounts, get loans, that kind of stuff with this bank. So, you know, if the regulations become a little bit more stringent on a, on a regional bank, you know, is it essentially just going to get more difficult to, you know, get a startup, maybe get some funding or a business loan or something along those lines? So what, what I read about Silicon Valley Bank is that they seem to have a very big risk appetite and they were doing things that most other banks wouldn't be willing to do when it comes to funding the tech sector. So, well, the point is not to get every tech startup up funded, right? Some tech startups are, are just not going to be very promising. I mean, how many dog walking apps do you need? So to have the difference, between, so you can get funding in different ways. You can get funding from, for example, a private equity fund or venture capital, or you can get funding from a commercial bank. The difference is that a commercial bank is highly regulated and uh, in part, it's going to be supported by the government like we saw in Silicon Valley Bank. So. When a commercial bank goes bust, the government comes in and they step in, they step in and they clean things up. There's a public cost to that. Uh, whereas if you are a private equity firm or if you are a venture capitalist, you know, you make a bad loan, it goes bust and you take the loss. There's no public element to it. So if you're talking about really risky investments like, like startups, which are very risky, maybe it makes more sense to be, have that funded purely by venture capitalists and private equity firms rather than the commercial banks, which at the end of the day are seem to be uh, backed by the public, backed by the government. So, you know, there's this business model here that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That is, you know, you could take a lot of risk and then if you go, if you win, you make money. And if you go bust, uh, the public pays. Now we, we don't want that, right? So it's, it's better to have something that's very risky being funded purely in, in by investors who are not going to be supported by the public. Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like the public's going to essentially pay for, for a lot of, uh, you know, what, what's going on here, whether it's, uh, you know, some an other change in monetary policy or something along those lines. Um, but uh, one last question before we kind of move on to like the Europe, uh, you know, issues that you alluded to earlier is, um, you know, I, I know we've kind of hammered on Silicon Valley Bank and you've, you've mentioned a few others, but, you know, I guess I'll leave it a little bit broad. Do you kind of see that although it's it was just one bank, Silicon Valley Bank, that was poorly managed, do you kind of see, I guess, uh, 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 in the future, I guess, if you get out your crystal ball that, you know, if the Fed keeps the interest rates where they're at, uh, maybe through next meeting or doesn't kind of pull back, that, you know, maybe we'll see a couple other regional banks start to fail, um, you know, in the next few months or so? I don't. And there's a, there, there's a couple reasons why. So uh, the first reason is actually that, well, as I mentioned before, I don't really, I think Silicon Valley Bank was just extremely poorly managed. The other regional banks are much, are much better managed. And ultimately, regional banks are regional, they're local. So when I'm looking at what's happening in the banking sector, I, I see all the panic concentrated in California. I'm not really sure. Now, I understand that if you are in California, then you know people who bank with Silicon Valley Bank. And obviously, people talk and that information spreads. So you, you become suspect of other banks in California. But I'm not sure that those networks spread uh, to other regions. Let's say you're at a regional bank in Georgia or in Texas. Do you know people who bank with Silicon Valley Bank? Is that something that is that do you have those social relationships that would actually make you suspect your own local bank? Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. But the second reason, and I think it's the more important reason, is that the policymakers are panicky and they're willing to do whatever it takes to stop this panic. And they're doing two things that I think will be very effective. The first thing is that the policymakers have basically strongly suggested that they're going to guarantee all deposits in the country. Now, if you're a depositor and you're panicking, 
The reason you panic is you're afraid that you are going to lose the money you put into a bank. But if all your deposits are guaranteed, no matter how large the sum, there's a lot less reason for you to panic. In order to guarantee deposits for all banks, you need an act of Congress. That's a really slow process. But as we saw, the Treasury, the FDIC, and the Fed were able to guarantee the deposits for everyone in Silicon Valley Bank. That's because once a bank fails, once a bank fails, the government has some special regulatory powers where it can do things like that. What Chair Powell has strongly hinted at is that if any other bank fails, we're going to do the same thing for you. And so basically, although he cannot legally say this, he's in fact implying that all deposits are guaranteed. When that happens, there's a lot less reason to run. Now, there are, there's something else that they're doing now is that the government, the Fed in particular, is willing to lend uh, to banks at very favorable uh, conditions. So they have this new bank lending facility that is able to pump lots of cash into the banking sector very at a very cheap rate. And when we look at the weekly Fed filings, we see that banks are borrowing a lot from the Fed, both from this new facility and from the discount window, and also from another lender called the Federal Home Loan Banks. So the banks are anticipating that there might be some liquidity squeeze, and so they're preparing. Now, when everyone is prepared uh, for potential withdrawals, it's much less likely for, for catastrophe to appear, to appear because everyone is um, everyone has a lot of cash on hand. So I think that the banking sector is prepared, the regulators are, are prepared. So it, it's very unlikely, in, in my view, for this panic to persist. Uh, I think we will forget about it in a, in a month or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that I, th- I believe everybody's prepared. And I, you know, based off kind of what Palace said in his last meeting uh, on Wednesday, that, you know, it, it seems like exactly like you said, like he can't legally say it, but essentially all, um, you know, deposits are, um, you know, almost guaranteed. But, you know, what are some of the, I guess, negative after effects that, that could potentially come come with that? Because it seems like, um, you know, that there was a bunch of liquidity dumped into the market in 2020 time, um, which is kind of pushed off and inflation is kind of running rampant. Uh, now, I mean, the Fed is obviously raising interest rates and seemingly trying to get, get it under control. Now, uh, obviously, we've seen CPI dip from around 10 to around six um, the, uh, over this past month. But, you know, with uh, insuring all of these deposits, is it potential where, you know, if the Fed, I guess we have kind of like quantitative easing, easing and quantitative tightening kind of happening almost simultaneously? Well, I, I wouldn't characterize the Fed's emergency lending to be quantitative easing. So when I think of quantitative easing, I think of the Fed as adding uh, adding liquidity into the financial system, excess liquidity, liquidity that no one really needs at the moment. And they take that liquidity that they don't really need and they go and they buy things like uh, corporate bonds or longer data treasuries or stocks. And that has an effect of making asset prices go higher. But when the Fed is making these emergency loans to banks, that's not excess liquidity. That's that someone somewhere in the financial system really, really needs cash. And so they're desperate for it and they're buying from the Fed. It's not excess cash that gets dumped into risk assets. So I don't think that's a risk positive signal. I think it's a very risk negative signal. Um, But I think for me, what I'm concerned about is that the market is, you know, a bit skittish at the time. And they seem to be pricing in rate cuts in the coming months. So when I look at uh, the financial markets, I think that the financial markets and the real economy are not the same. They're separate, but they're related. So as, as we all know, the stock market is not the economy. So for example, over the past 10 years, we saw the stock market continue to rise in part because of what the Fed was doing, but the real economy just kind of wobble around. So the one of the ways that the financial economy, the financial markets impacts the real economy is through interest rates. If the financial markets are looking at what's happening in the banking sector and getting a bit panicked and thinking that the Fed is going to cut rates, because that's what the Fed has been doing for the past 10 years, so it's not an unreasonable thing to expect, 
then what that means is that the 10-year yield goes lower, mortgage rates go lower, and that has a direct impact on the real economy, which so far has been pretty strong. So let's just look back a few months. Last quarter, so quarter four of last year, we had mortgage rates go up to 7%. And then everyone was thinking, yeah, the Fed is probably going to start easing monetary policy sometime in 2023. Then the market began to price in some rate cuts and mortgage rates came down. And then in January, we saw housing reaccelerate very quickly once mortgage rates dipped to uh, below 6%. So if there's, there's a kind of a big disconnect between the financial markets, which are very worried, and the real economy, which seems so far to be pretty strong, right? We have job growth, strong wages, economic growth is fine. So if the market is overreacting and pricing in rate cuts and the real economy is still okay, we can have a scenario where in a few months inflation reaccelerates because everyone goes and takes advantage of those lower interest rates and goes and buys a house or do some does some kind of investment. So I think that that's that's the concern to me that the market is um, not is a bit too panicked and so pushing interest rates lower, causing the real economy to later reaccelerate and in, in turn, forcing the Fed to hike rates again. Yeah, and I kind of agree with you here, too, because I've been under the the belief that, you know, as Powell has gone through, you know, every meeting, he's he said, you know, there's going to be more pain. He expects unemployment to rise and, uh, you know, higher for longer um, kind of, uh, you know, rhetoric in each one of his FOMC meetings. Um, but yeah, I, it, it is interesting that there's already 100 basis points of uh, rate hikes already priced in by January. Um, so meaning that, you know, Fed, the Fed is a, essentially going to need to start cutting, you know, somewhat soon, uh, according to the market, obviously. Um, so, you know, on that note, like, how do you see, you know, Jerome Powell kind of, uh, I guess, playing this out? Because it seems like he pays somewhat attention to the market, but he's also, you know, like, like I've said, he's also kind of tried to warn the market, um, you know, in previous meetings. Uh, it did seem like he pulled back a little bit in the last one, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on, you know, Powell going forward. So the first thing that I note is that the market has a very, very bad track record in predicting the Fed because the market always thinks that the future looks like the past. Now, I remember right after the great financial crises, um, the market was thinking that, you know, in a few years, we're going to raise interest rates to, you know, two, three, four percent. The market thought that because that's how the world worked right before the great financial crises. Um, but then, as we know, rates stayed at zero for almost a decade. The Fed was always inclined to stay dovish and cut rates. And so today, when the market is looking at the Fed, they're thinking that the Fed today is like the Fed of the last 10 years. They're going to cut rates at the slightest rise in volatility. Now, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't know if that's true. I suspect that's, that's not going to be true because the game fundamentally changes when you have inflation. When you have inflation, you know, the Fed has two mandates, price stability and full employment. When you have large inflation like we do now, the Fed, you know, they can't easily cut rates whenever there's weakness in the economy because they're also concerned about their inflation mandate. The market over the past few months has consistently thought that, you know, we're going to get Fed is going to cut rates in a few months because inflation is going to come under under control, and they've consistently been very wrong. They're just they just have they just have this huge impulse to think that the Fed is going to cut rates soon, and that that's a huge problem for Chair Powell because Chair Powell again he only controls the overnight rate, so whether or not he's raising or lowering the Fed funds rate, but the way that interest rates feed through to the economy, it's not purely the overnight rate. It's also the perception of what the Fed will do over the next few months. That's really how the Fed influences interest rates. He hasn't been pushing back. He hasn't been pushing against the market's assumptions that rate cuts will be imminent. He's been asked about that, and he just says that this is not our base case. I understand why he does this, because from his perspective, you know, he doesn't really know what the future will be. And so he doesn't want to commit to it. And the Fed has been, the Fed's forecasts have been very wrong over the past year where they said that inflation would be transitory and it wasn't. 
So I think he's that makes him cautious in trying to enforce the Fed's projections onto the market. But the problem is that, well, if you don't enforce the Fed's projections on the market, the market is going to think that you're cutting rates, rates, borrowing costs go lower, and inflation has a more likelihood of being persistent. So I think it's unfortunate that he wasn't more forceful in pushing back against the market's narrative, but I understand why, why he doesn't. Yeah. And that's all, that all makes sense. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess we'll see, right. That the future will, will play out as it plays out. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's just interesting that the market's in a game of, you know, predicting, because like you said, the market is very forward facing or forward uh, looking and attempting to, to predict everything and essentially screaming for, for the pivot. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it kind of plays out, but I want to revert back a little bit to what you brought up a little bit earlier about Europe. And you said that you're a little bit more worried when it comes to the European banking system opposed to the United States. So why do you think that is? And uh, yeah, just let's just dive right in. So over the past weekend, over the past week, we saw the failure of Credit Suisse. Now, Credit Suisse is a GSUB. It is a big globally connected bank. It's a it's a bank that matters. These regional banks, they, they really don't matter. So Silicon Valley Bank, it's actually not even... 10% the size of JP Morgan. So it's just, it's just not that important. It's not even globally interconnected, but Credit Suisse is. Now, Credit Suisse, if you look at their stock price, it's been basically declining every day for about a year. Credit Suisse is the bank that made loans to Bill Huang and lost a whole bunch of money. They've made a whole bunch of loans over the past few years that have lost a whole bunch of money. So they are a very badly managed bank and they were always on death watch. They decided to die this past weekend. And what I think people should focus on is that although they died, they were basically, the government stepped in and basically wrapped it up over the weekend. And there seemingly were no um, market repercussions. And that was really surprising to me how quickly the authorities acted and how unremarkable the failure was. So that tells you that the policymakers are really willing to do whatever it takes to prevent another Lehman. Remember, many policymakers here grew up during the great financial crises and they know that's really bad and they will do whatever it takes to stop it. So yes, I think there's more concern about banking in the Eurozone, but you also have to realize that because the regulatory response is so powerful, there's not a lot of tail risk there. Now, in general, I think Europe is more concerning because unlike the US, they have they don't have a unified system. They don't have a banking union. And at the end of the day, if the ECB wanted to bail out uh, one bank or another bank, there are also political implications there. Maybe uh, the Germans don't want to bail out a bank in Italy, or maybe the Italians don't want to bail out a bank in Germany. So there's that extra political layer that prevents actions from being coordinated as swiftly as they could in Switzerland, which is all one country, and in the US. So there is a little bit more risk there, but you know I, I don't think it's a lot um, simply because everyone knows the price of having a GSIP fail and they will do whatever it takes to stop it. Now today, as we're recording in March 24th, there seems to be a bit more concern about Deutsche Bank. Uh, from what I see, uh, I hear people say that that's kind of just panic because Deutsche Bank is actually doing much better than it's had in the past. I, I don't really know, but I really don't think it's something that's worth worrying about because if anything happened, I think that they will, there, there would be some volatility, but I think they will do whatever it takes to, to paper it over. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like, although, you know, although there's concerns of the banking sector in the United States and in Europe, uh, that regulators have essentially showed that they're going to do, you know, whatever it takes in order to either take out the bad actors or bail out and ensure people that they, they've gotten their deposits. Um, but the only issue between the two is that obviously Europe's not all one country, similarly to the United States or Switzerland. So uh, I guess, is that kind of, am I along the lines there where that, that's kind of your, your opinion uh, as to the way you see it play out is that, you know, it is maybe just a panic right now because things don't seem all like peaches and daisies in the economy, but, uh, and, and there's one bank that fails, but it, in, in reality, it's not as bad as it may seem. 
Well, if you look at the stock market, it's, it's very resilient. So I, I was around in 2008. <laughs> what do you have a banking crisis? You're living down, you're living down uh, multiple times. So I think the market, I think the, the market is, is taking this in stride. I think what's what may be happening is you have um, maybe people are writing sensational stories because they because those get clicks. Um, but I, I don't think what's happening is something today is serious. I don't think it's worthy of panic. Um, the bigger picture that I would I, I would I would offer is that the authorities are willing to do whatever it takes to prevent crashes. And when you cut off the tail risk, then you know the the outcomes are biased towards higher asset prices and higher inflation as well. Yeah, and so with that, um, you know, there's been kind of the theory that I've heard thrown around by you know some others like Michael Guyad and and some others that I've had on the podcast as well, where we're going to have like you know like you said, kind of higher asset prices, which will be you know maybe a melt up throughout the rest of the year. But it seems like 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 we've said before that the market is almost too forward looking that they think the history is going to repeat. Um, so do you think like because of that, uh, you know, there could be, you know, potential for, you know, maybe a good 2023, let's say, and then, um, you know, maybe down the line in the future, kind of causing somewhat of a recession? Or, um, you know, do you see, I guess, the path as Jerome Powell has kind of landed out as there's going to be potential for a soft landing? So I think actually the potential for uh, for uh, so first off I don't think there's going to be a hard landing and I don't think we're going to have a big crash in, in asset prices. That's what I feel most comfortable with because as I mentioned the policymakers are going to do whatever it takes to prevent prevent something like that happening. They are they are very I think they're very the, the culture that we have today is is one that's very averse to pain. So if policymakers can't take any pain that means they're very eager to stimulate the economy both from the monetary side and from the fiscal side, that, that in my view, makes a hard landing or any crash in asset prices very unlikely. Uh, that being said, I don't have a strong outlook for, uh, for, for equities. I don't think we're crashing. I don't think we'll continue to soar. I, I would think that we kind of stay range bound throughout the rest of the year. Uh, what I would feel more comfortable with is something like um, relative place, like the dollar. Um, I think the dollar will, even though we're, We've sold off for this past few weeks. I think that throughout 2023 will we'll continue to strengthen because, as I mentioned before, I suspect that inflation is going to stay persistent um, throughout the year and it's not going to be a pure U.S. problem. But one thing about the U.S. is that we have more capacity to raise interest rates than other countries simply because of how our monetary system works. Um, for example, if you raise rates in Australia or in Canada or, or in the Eurozone, a lot of people feel that pretty quickly through mortgages that are, um, I guess, short dated or variable. So you can raise a little bit and you get a big impact pretty quickly uh, in terms of slowing down demand. But for the US, I think it's not as sensitive because we have 30 year fixed rate mortgages and many of our corporates borrowed a ton in 2020. So you're hiking rates now, but it doesn't actually feed through to the economy uh, super well since so many people have refied at uh, 3% mortgages and so forth. And a lot of corporations have a lot of cash. Now, eventually, those corporations will have to refi. But if you look at corporate profits, they are record highs. So they can afford to pay some higher interest rates. And everyone else who has a 3% mortgage, well, they get to uh, enjoy that while their wages go up 5% and while inflation is also 5%. Yeah, it, it, but it seems like, you know, as just kind of observing from other, you know, metrics, it seems like wages aren't rising as quickly as maybe as, in, as inflation is. But do you think, I guess, I guess that's the next cog to kind of go is that, you know, instead of, I guess we had kind of the great resignation in 2020-ish time, 2020 to 2021, where people were kind of jumping from job to job and getting 15 to 30% raises um, just from going to a lateral move to a different company. Uh, do you think that, you know, that trend is going to maybe continue or maybe uh, there might be a new trend where, you know, employers or employees at a new job are going to start to get, uh, you know, increased rate wages. But the new norm, instead of the 3% raise that is expected every year, it's going to be, you know, maybe a 5 or a 6% raise. I mean, obviously, that's kind of a I, I think what's happening in the labor market is 
is something we haven't seen before. And that is, so wages are increasing above inflation for low-skilled blue-collar wage, wages, and they are increasing at a rate that's below inflation for the white-collar. So it's the blue-collar people that are getting real wage gains and the white-collar folk are, are not. And if you look at layoffs, well, usually you'd expect that when the Fed raises rates, interest rate sensitive sectors like real estate slowing down and you'd have a lot of layoffs in the construction sector. But you really haven't seen that. In fact, what you've seen is layoffs in another very interest rate sensitive sector, the tech sector. And the tech sector employs white collar workers who are, are, are much better paid. So what's really interesting this time is that it's actually the people who have been left behind over the past few decades that are, are doing fine. And it's the people who have been doing very well over the past few decades that, that, are, that are suffering a bit. But, you know, if you're a white collar employee at Amazon or Google or something like that, you lose your job, you can actually find one pretty quickly. So it, it's, not, it's not that big of a deal. So th there's this big shift right now where um, it's, it's people who are lower wages that, that are benefiting the most, more, more from this, this structural change. And I think the reason for that is because there's this huge sociological shift in how we value labor. Over the past few decades, we undervalued manual labor. Everyone had to go to college. Everyone had to go and work in an office. We weren't encouraging people to go do trades. We weren't encouraging people to learn how to be a plumber or wield, uh, wield iron or drive a truck and so forth. And now we have a structural shortage of people who are in blue-collar blue jobs. So I think that will persist. Uh, so that that will persist, and the white collar people, white collar jobs, they'll they'll find new jobs. So overall, I, I think that uh, the labor market seems seems pretty healthy, driven by these secular trends. Wage growth is 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 fine for people who need it the most. Yeah, I mean that that kind of that's a trend that I kind of believe that's going to happen as well, where the blue collar worker is going to kind of start to become, I guess, more valuable in a sense where, you know, the wages or the, the amount that they can charge for a specific project and, and whatnot is going to be higher than it's ever been. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a positive for the trades and everything like that. But I want to stick on the consumer side of things because I think there's some interesting statistics there that, you know, show like, you know, credit card debt at, uh, you know, nearly an all time high, a personal savings at a very low rate. And, uh, you know, um, and uh, student loans have been essentially just put off for, you know, quite some time where there hasn't been any interest on any of those payments. And so, you know, I know anecdotally, I know a lot of people, you know, around my age or maybe younger that have not even been paying uh, their student loans down um, because they're, you know, essentially waiting for a potential ruling where, you know, they might get uh, some forbearance on those student loans. Now, uh, you know, for me personally, I, I see this as kind of like, uh, you know, a flood just almost leaking over the dam. And, uh, you know, once the student loan payments have to start recurring again, uh, you know, some people uh, in, I guess, uh, the middle class area might might start to feel some pain where they've either, you know, gotten in an apartment too, too expensive or whatnot. Um, and then now they have a, a payment that they've put off for quite some time. Um, as far on the consumer side, do you feel that it's, uh, you know, th that they're still strong and I'm just, you know, over here just, uh, you know, I guess fear mongering and kind of reading too many headlines or um, do you kind of see, I guess, some of the issues that I I'm looking at as well? So we are a really big country. We have differences among regions and we have differences among different, uh, you know, age groups, demographic groups and so forth. So it it's hard to just, you can't paint just one big broad brush. So in any, any in any time you're going to have some some segments who is who are doing better and some segments that are not doing that as well uh, when i look at things overall though I, I don't i come away with with a sense that the u.s households in general are, are doing quite well uh so the way that i would look at this is well first let's look at a wealth side asset side so anyone who owned a home over the past two years well their home is worth like 30 percent more right at the same time, their mortgage payments are way down. They got to refi at 3%. Now, if you are a younger person, yes, you, you probably did not own a home back then. Uh, but everyone else, you know, they got to huge equity appreciation and lower mortgage rate payments. 
and they're getting higher um, wages from their job. So, you know, a vast set, a vast part of the population is doing very well. And I'm not just talking about Bill Gates. Let's say your uh, average 40, 50 year old person who uh, just works a middle class job, bought a home like a, 10 years ago and so forth. You know, they, they, they're a lot wealthier and they're, they have a lot more cash flow because their wages went higher and their mortgage payments went lower. So that's a lot of people. Now, when you're talking about people who are younger, now I can totally understand that because, well, home prices went up a lot, so they wouldn't be able to afford a house. And um, you have student loan payments and student loan payment, student loan debt is, is high and, and so forth. Um, so I, I can understand that among some of the younger demographics, things may not be as well. Although I, I would note that they they are getting very strong wage increases, right? More than they had in the past. Um, when I think look at things like credit card debt and so forth, I, I'm not really concerned about that because if you look at the total picture, credit card debt is is not a very big part of consumer debt. And I think more importantly, um, well, if you have high wage gains and if you have higher wealth then i think it makes sense for people to feel confident enough to take on more credit card debt when you look at credit card debt rising you can tell all sorts of stories is it someone very desperate not able to pay their bills so having to borrow on their credit cards or is it someone who is feeling fine about their financial situation and able and willing to take on more debt when you look at strong wage gains when you look at overall asset prices inflation I think, in my view, it's more likely that it's because people are feeling more confident. And, and not to mention the fact that if you have poor finances, you, people don't lend you money. Um, now, let's look, at, let's look at the broader point, though. Where are the stock prices? S&P 4000, that's much, much higher than pre-pandemic. So a lot of people still have a lot of, a lot of wealth. Yeah. Where's crypto? Bitcoin, down a lot from their highs, much, much higher than they were pre-pandemic. So when people are not as wealthy as they were at the peak of the peak of the craze, but they're still much better than they were pre-COVID. So I, I think that, um, okay. And, and also, again, government gave people a lot of money. That money actually hasn't been fully spent yet. And some people, like you mentioned, savings rates have gone down, but you, know, you would expect that to happen eventually because people are spending all the money that they accumulated over the past few years and it's been declining but it's still there yeah i mean it's interesting that you you point to to pre-pandemic because you know obviously we we've seen so much volatility um you know in the markets since that time and i guess is that do you kind of accredit that the volatility that maybe is not exactly normal for for the stock market and other you know asset prices obviously for for bitcoin or some of these other ones it is you know, the volatility is, is part of it. But, you know, maybe for like the S&P 500 or some of these other ones, we've seen, you know, massive amounts of volatility. And so, you know, when we see something like that, that's what we kind of maybe attribute to the stock or the, uh, the overall economy not doing as well, when in reality, it's just kind of leveling out and the, the asset prices were just, you know, I guess, overpriced. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Uh, are, you, are you thinking the the markets were just kind of exaggerated over the past yeah years? essentially like they're exaggerated in both directions and so because of that you know people have kind of had the the impression that you know things were a lot better than they were when you know everything was rising up and you know uh, inflation hadn't really come around just yet and we weren't really aware of it and then now that things are kind of leveling out and going back down as the Fed's tightening rates. Uh, people think everything's kind of crashing and burning when in reality, you know, like we've said, the Silicon Valley Bank is just kind of an aftermath of, you know, poor risk management for a bank. And, you know, the the asset prices, like I just looked it up while we were sitting here, the S&P 500 is up about like three and a half percent or no, two and a half percent, excuse me, year to date. And uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't well, seem like it's any sign of really slowing down. Yeah. So I think that so. One thing that's interesting today is that we're all more connected by social media. And the thing is that social media, it's an international thing, but our experiences, our real economy is still local. So what, what could happen is that you have a lot of people who have big online presence, like people who live in California, 
who are getting laid off from their fancy tech jobs, who banked with Silicon Valley Bank and got panicked. And they're all very online because, you know, if you look at Twitter, obviously the, the people in California who work in tech, who have uh, white collar jobs, they're going to be overrepresented, overrepresented in the platform like this. And so and the same for the journalists, for example, these are the people who hang out with journalists and these are the people who live in the big cities and they, they talk about what's happened to them and how they perceive it. But I think what they fail to realize that it's not representative of the broader world. Uh, if you are a blue collar worker, like I mentioned, you know, things have been better, have been better for you since for, for many decades, but maybe you are not as active on social media because you're not in tech or you're not in big city and so forth. So I think we have to be careful in, in interpreting sentiment and what we hear in the news, uh, because that's really the perspective of certain people who are concentrated on the coast in the big cities and not necessarily of what they're experiencing and not necessarily representative of what the broader nation is experiencing. Yeah. And that's a fair point. And I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to see how, how this all plays out. It's definitely like an interesting time. And, you know, I, I definitely think like, you're right. There's more of a, a microscope and people kind of discussing it, you know, with the addition of things like, you know, uh, social audio, like uh, clubhouse, Twitter spaces, that kind of thing. And then, you know, obviously it seems like uh, financial Twitter or FinTwit has kind of blown up in the past couple of years, or maybe that's just, just uh, the, the, at the time I've started observing it. So, you know, I do agree with you on that point where it seems like the spread of information and, you know, whether it was like the Wall Street bets craze or something like that, you know, people are just starting to pay attention a little bit more than maybe they had in years past. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, we, there's a lot more information. Uh, there's a lot more independent podcasts, uh, I like your own, that, that help and educate people. And so people maybe are just a bit more aware than they used to be. Yeah, for sure. Well, Joseph, I really appreciate you uh, giving me some of your time this morning. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I had a very interesting conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. And I think the audience will too. So why don't you tell people, uh, you know, where they can find you and what you got going on? Sure, you can follow me on Twitter at FedGuy12. Or you can check out my website FedGuy.com where I write commentary about the markets. If you're interested in learning more about the financial system, I have a best-selling book called Central Banking 101 available on Amazon. And if you're interested in learning more about markets, uh, I teach about different asset classes on my online courses at centralbanking101.com. Awesome. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes and in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. So thank you so much for tuning in. And Joseph, thanks so much for your time, man. Thanks for inviting me, Brandon.